Thanks for taking a walk with me and checking out the retail gems down the street, around the corner, and in our own backyards in the Store Next Door podcast, where each show we talk to owners, managers, and employees of some of the coolest bookstores around and some of your favorite and soon-to-be-favorite authors. I'm Doug Cooper, author of the award-winning novels Outside In, The Investment Club, Focus Lost, and coming in spring of 2023, the children's book, The Snail and the Butterfly. This podcast is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, based in Los Angeles, a publisher of 50-plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. Today, I'm here with Gary Lippman, author of We Love the World But Could Not Stay, a collection of one-sentence stories, and Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. Praised by Laurie Anderson, Tom Robbins, and Lauren Braco, We Love the World But Could Not Stay is no dry philosophical tome, offering up psychedelic portraits of time travelers and taxi drivers, a wrestling match between ancient gods and the meaning of a mural on the wall of a Miami Beach pizzeria. Lippman deploys a unique artistic sensibility, one that combines Borscht Belt-style one-liners and surreal takes on American pop iconography. Welcome, Gary. Great speaking with you again. Thanks for stopping by the store next door. My pleasure, Doug. Great to be with you. So good old Lunt Marlin from Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate is still one of my favorite character names. How'd you go from the novel with Lunt and Sharon Tate to a collection of one-sentence stories? Uh, well, it was a pretty easy jump because I've always been, even uh, as far back as you know, I was reading novels as a kid, science fiction, detective novels, I was always really drawn to short stories. And even as a kid, I found the shorter, the better. I was intrigued by how much story you could get into a short space, into a really compact, uh, cogent uh, form. And that that always, you know, has been a thing for me. Uh, whenever I'll look at a short story collection uh, in a bookstore, if I buy one and bring it home, I'll always, you know, I don't know exactly why, but I'll always look for the shortest stories and read them first. I kind of, maybe it's deep down a kind of show me what you got in the least amount of time and let's see if we can work together thing with the author. So um, I've always been drawn to that. And after publishing my novel uh, in 2019, which was, you know, I think it was something like 400 pages, I thought, maybe I'll try something different and maybe I'll do stories. And then I kind of moved into the, maybe I'll make them really short. And then I sort of, as a challenge for myself, thought, how about if I just make them each one sentence long? Could I, uh, could I do that? Could I manage to tell a story in one sentence? And uh, I got started. It's up to the reader to judge whether I'm successful at it, but I had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, I, I really, once I got started, I really had a lot of momentum. It helped because uh, I began it in very late 2019. And once the pandemic started and the lockdown, um, it was a book I mainly worked on then. And I found that form to be kind of comforting to work on during the lockdown, maybe because my attention span was kind of uh, shattered by everything going on. Working with these really short stories and getting in and out of different fictional worlds, however uh, circumscribed they were by the brevity of the, the story length, it really was uh, a pleasure you know, during that very tough time. And it was tough. Uh, I lost some friends during the pandemic and uh, was plenty scared and, and felt pretty isolated at times. But writing these one-sentence stories was really kind of a, a solace. Did you know right away that you were writing a book or did you just start writing them and kind of evolved? Uh, I I knew I wanted to do a book. I Once I got going... And I realized I had a bunch of them. I kept a list of ideas and um, and started, you know, going through them and really felt like there was a lot of, I had a lot of stories to tell. And so I thought this could be my next book. And I was happy with that. I wanted to do something different than, than uh, a novel. 
uh, I plan to go back to writing novels. But um, for this, I really, I, I knew from the beginning it was a book. Did you go through the periods of uh, doubt and questioning? Oh, am I going to be able to do a whole book? What What am I doing? I'm writing all these one-sentence stories, and I might get a third or halfway and, and not be able to continue? Doug, if you look up my name in the phone book, you'll see my middle name is self-doubt. <laughs> I doubt every step of the way with writing and in life. <laughs> I always was wondering if these were any good and if um, anybody would like them. And I never really knew until our publisher, the publisher we share, Rare Bird, uh, Tyson Cornell, um, read a draft and seemed to like it. I felt validated by that. A few, a few people I showed stories to, friends, my wife, um, were, were positive too. But that didn't completely erase the self-doubt. The self-doubt is with me as a writer um, every step of the way. And the way I manage that is ultimately say, I've made each story or the novel, whatever I'm working on, as good as I can. And I like it. There's certainly room for improvement, but I like it. It's the kind of thing I'd like to read if somebody else wrote it. So I'm just going to go with it. That was kind of what I said to myself. If I dig it and I did my best with it, life's short. I'm not going to just keep belaboring it and worrying. I'm just going to get it out there. Self-doubt, be damned. What role do you think self-doubt plays in your creative process? Um, I think it's, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. I think it can be healthy because it keeps you honest and it keeps you modest and it keeps you um, from, be, you know, I'm sure there are uh, writers who are arrogant about their their gifts. If you don't mind a little uh, illustrating that, I just read a fantastic short story by an obscure writer named Max Bierbaum. And the story is called Enoch Soames. And very, very, summing it up very briefly, uh, this writer in Victorian England is a young poet who's so arrogant about his talent that he assures everyone, even though he's only just started publishing, that a hundred years from now, he's going to be like Shakespeare. And the devil appears and makes the usual deal with this guy, Enoch Soames, and says, if you sign away to me your soul, I'll let you go visit the British Library 100 years from now. And you can check out all your books in the library and see how famous you've become a hundred years from now. So this guy, Enoch Soames says, your deal, deal. I'll take it. Take my soul. I want to do that. And um, as the story by Max Bierbaum goes, uh, Enoch Soames is transported a hundred years into the future. I think it's like 1997 London, a hundred years from when he lived. And the devil guides him into the British library. And Enoch Soames looks for his books there, expecting to find shelf after shelf of his great, brilliant tomes. And he's very uh, bummed out, to say the least, to find only one reference to himself in the library. No books, just a reference in some literary um, encyclopedia. And what the reference is, Enoch Soames, the character in a story by Max Bierbaum. And uh, so he, his, he's totally brought down to earth. His arrogance is gone. And uh, he realizes not only is he not a great writer that he thinks he is, he's not even real. He's just the character in somebody else's story. Uh, so self-doubt can really play a part um, in bringing us down to earth. But it can be harmful if you let it get the upper hand and if it prevents you from writing or prevents you from finishing what you're writing and then sending it out to get feedback and ultimately to get published if possible. So it's both good and bad. Yeah, it can be our uh, you know great tool, but also uh, an inhibitor as well. So I think like you said, you get to that point where you're you're like, self-doubt be damn and and you push forward that's the key i think you have to say okay i'm not shakespeare 
I'm not even, you know, necessarily as good as my some writers I like, but I'm me. I'm writing what I want to write, which is a great gift to be able to do that. I'm going to make it as good as I can make it and then put it out in the world and reactions to it. We hope people will dig it. But if they don't, well, we did our best. I like thinking of it as wearing different hats. And when I'm doing the writing, I wear that self-doubt, that editor, that critique hat. And sometimes I put it in the basement, in the closet, lock it away, and don't put it on for a period of time that as I start to make a move for it, said no, it stays stays locked away because I think it's hard to simultaneously be the creative and be the critic. So both are, are necessary roles, but you'll have to, you know, I try to just power through, like I would say, get get a hundred pages before you start critiquing it because it's so difficult. And while you're in creative mode, you're sensitive, you're open and you're usually unnecessarily critical of, of yourself and going through a lot of those, those, that doubt. And then when you kind of look back at it, you said, ah, there's some, there's some good stuff here that I can work with. But if you were being too critical along the way, you would never, you would never put it together. Right. Yeah. I had a friend, a great writer named Harry Cruz. And I asked Harry once about first drafts and how you know whether the first draft is any good. And he said he never even asked himself that. He just powers through writing a first draft and then looks at what he has. And his exact words or near exact words were, the middle of a first draft is the worst place to judge judge it from, you know? You want to keep going with a first draft, whether it's a story or a novel, and you know, get as much of it down without being critical, self-critical, as you can. Because as you, you put that really well, you're in this open, receptive place when you're writing a first draft. Editing, wearing that editing hat, if you can manage to keep it off your head till the second draft, right, then you put the editing hat on. And you go to work on, on revising. Um, and that's where criticism comes. I think the first draft, you just go on inspiration if you can and keep at bay the editor. I, I refer to my first draft as throwing up on the page and going back later to clean it up and see if there's anything salvageable. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, and, and let me tell you, there are many one sentence stories that I wrote that never made it into the book. Probably twice as many. They were fun to write and I liked them when I was writing them, but when I got done with them and edited them, they just didn't make the grade. So, uh, or they were repetitive, you know, they, they echoed too much a, another story. So um, having that editing facility kick in at the right time is key. I love the density and, and the depth of the stories. The only thing short is the word count. You know, each one says so very much. I kept thinking of that Pascal line about not having time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one. You know, did this style of writing require more editing than the longer prose that you've done? That's that's an excellent question. Um, I think it... It did in the sense that um, uh, each word had to be right, you know, um, because each story was so short, every word had to count and kind of justify its existence there and be the right word as I saw it. Um, on the other hand, I found it easier to edit these very short stories than I did the novel I wrote because... The, each story was its own one sentence world, but it was a, a very limited world because it was only, you know, however many words that make up that sentence. The novel, I found um, so many moving parts that had to fit together that that became at times uh, um, challenging to keep it all in mind, you know, not repeat adjectives too often, same adjective or, you know, so. Um, 
very different, very different experience writing these very short stories versus writing a long form, you know, a novel or even a really long short story or novella. But even though they were standalone, I felt there was a, a placement, a rhythm, a, a cadence of, of how they were put put together. Did you, once you had them, were you moving them around? Was there um, a story thread that you were putting through there? Yeah, I, you know, I'm glad you asked that because that was in some ways the most challenging aspect of the book. I knew that even though um, right, readers may dip in anywhere to read a story, just open to any page and read, I wanted there to be, um, I, 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 the ideal reader would, you know, or at least I had to assume that many readers would start at page one and read it through in, in order, in sequence. So because I have something like, I think there's over 400 stories, it was really mind-melting trying to organize them in a way where I don't repeat too many sex stories at once, you know, don't have too many sex stories in one place or drug stories or fables or, um, you know, um, memory stories versus fanciful, invented, uh, you know, kind of surreal stories. I wanted to really um, have the placement be diverse. So it, because there were so many of them, I put a lot of time and care and there was a lot of frustration involved in organizing them. Made me think of like, you know, when a rock band or, or rock artist, music artist puts together an album, they have 12, 13 songs and they have to figure out a sequence. What song goes first? What go, song goes last? And so I thought about that kind of ruefully because I had 400 of these to order. So um, I, I wrote each story title or subject on a little piece of uh, index card. And then I had on the floor of my office all these index cards. And I got to work putting them in order with the index cards. And that's how I did it. Interesting. And as I was reading, because the richness of the writing, I would read only one to two a day and it chew on them throughout the day. I found that if I read more, I wasn't absorbing as much as I felt was there. How, how did you envision readers consuming the material? Well, that's uh, a few other people have said that to me, Doug. Serious readers have said that to me. Um, and I think that's probably the best way because while some of them are very, um, I hope, fun and kind of um, less serious, many of them really are intended to be serious and to be thought about, um, whether it's a paradox or a tragic content. And so, you know, ideally, the way you, you read it is the way I would want people to read it, you know, to, to read each story and think about it rather than just turn to the next one. Um, so that's the ideal way. I think that if I were not the writer and I found this book in a bookstore or a library and brought it home, I would probably read it that way too, one or two at a time. And as I was reading, sometimes I didn't know whether you were making fun of something. You kind of walked the edge on so much that I think it really made made me think and one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much and one example of that is you know one of the criticisms of modern life is the short attention span of people and in crafting this collection I kept thinking is he recognizing that and providing entertainment to fit that or criticizing it or maybe a little of both I think uh you're right to wonder about that. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I myself have a pretty short attention span these days. And as I said earlier, I really like, and I don't know why exactly, but I really am drawn to very short stories. Then again, um, I'm really drawn to long books too. I read, you know, big novels often with pleasure. I believe in them. I think it'd be a shame if the world of literature was ultimately reduced because of our short attention spans to, um, 
you know, just short stories in the future. I think, I, I hope and pray that we always have long novels, that people are always putting them out there and that there's always a readership for long novels. I'll be part of that readership. For this project, though, I really got into um, writing short and thought, you know, kind of uh, tongue in cheek, given that I and many others have short attention spans, maybe we'll play to that. And you're right, even sort of make fun of it. My joke about it, uh, on the back of the book, it says, stories for people with a limited attention span. And my joke is, if you don't like one story, the next story is only half a sentence away. I think that um, for this project, um, it's all about you know the short attention span, but I hope people will still want to read novels, my own and yours included. Yeah, one of the, you know, you mentioned before the one sentence sex stories. And I think that's another example. I'm sure some of my previous partners are probably saying, oh, no wonder he liked the book so much. One sentence short stories. It sounds like a, or sex stories sounds like a relationship with, with him. Talk a little bit about, about those style of stories. You know, I wanted from the beginning to have um, a, a sort of cohesiveness to the book where, uh, you know, there are characters who recur again and again and uh, situations sort of recur or get echoed or, or um, sort of vary their variations on things. I also wanted there to be great diversity to the stories. So I... I have, you know, sex, drugs, ghosts. Um, there's a few mysteries. There's even a Western. There's a spy story. There's um, uh, fables. Um, not quite, I don't think any children's stories that come to mind. I wanted to have a diversity of them. And many of them were autobiographical. So uh, sex and love, you know, came to the fore. And uh, both experiences I've had, both positive and negative, with sex and romance, and also, you know, uh, inventions that I had. Um, I think death is probably a big subject too. Sex and death, no big surprise, since they're kind of two of the big engines for all literature and fiction uh, of all sorts. Sex and death play uh, the biggest roles probably here. I started highlighting stories to refer back to. Then I found so many I had marked it lost meaning. Here's one of them called Feet. As a lover of feet, shapely ones for the most part, but any tootsies were capable of giving him a tingle. Map assumed that his new job as a salesperson in a shoe store would be nonstop bliss. But soon enough, he discovered the wisdom of the Austrian journalist Karl Kraus, who said, the tragedy of the foot fetishist is that he must spend time with the person attached to the foot. You know, that just kind of said so, so much. And it also introduced this character, Map, who, as you said, does reappear throughout in multiple stories. Right, yeah. I wanted, I made a conscious choice at the beginning of writing, you know, um, with so many stories, I thought, are they all going to be I or you or he or she? And I thought, let's have some recurring characters. There are two in particular, a guy named Map and a woman named Prina, who recur often in different situations, many different situations. And um, the goal there was to have the book feel uh, more cohesive, you know, that it wasn't just all these different stories coming from different directions. But the hope was that the reader would say, oh, there's that, that guy again, or there's that woman again, okay? And learn a little bit more about each of these two characters as the book goes on. I actually mention uh, or make reference a few times to the fact that they used to date each other, but had a terrible breakup. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, that, you know, that's something, a little breadcrumb for the reader to think about if they're so inclined, you know, to you know, that too gives a little um, definition to their characters. And uh, I had a lot of fun because the female character 
is a far more together person, I think, than the male character. He's always getting into trouble or screwing up. She's a lot more together as a person than he is. Kind of thought that if they dated, if, as they did date, as I say, and broke up, it was probably his fault. And I felt his name of of Map and what you just touched on that he's kind of all over the place, right? So with his name being Map, I was like, oh, that's a great name for this this character because he covers a lot of ground. Yeah, that's great. I hadn't thought of that. But that's very cool, Doug. His last name, and I'm not sure if I'll pronounce this, is it Grilopin or Grillopin? Well, it's uh, um, I made that name up. It's grill. I pronounce it Grillapin, you know. But um, yeah, I like very uh, colorful, unusual names, and I came up with that one. And I came up with uh, his counterpart. The female is Prina. Her last name is Pamlig, Prina Pamlig. And I was playing a little bit of a game because if you put those names together and look at them and scramble the letters around, you'll find a little surprise. <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is, but both names are anagrams. Oh, I like I like that. I I hadn't picked up on hadn't picked up on that, but I'll have to do a little word jumble, uh, word word jumble later. <laughs> yeah, I think. And, and you, because you're my friend, you get a little special extra treatment. So if you can't figure it out, get in touch with me and I'll tell you. It might take me hours, but I, I will not. Uh... Okay. Well, one more clue then. One more clue. The anag- If you anagramize their names, they come to, they have the same anagrammatical source or origin. In other words, if you scramble their letters around, they spell the same two words. Well, I knew you had cre- I knew you had created the last name because I was doing some research trying to find etymology, you know, background, what what does it mean, and I couldn't find anything. Nothing comes back with that name. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, man. Well, you're you're in the vein of a reader of my novel, my book about Sharon Tate obsessives, and in that book I have a cough syrup that the main character becomes addicted to much to his uh bad bad uh bad outcome uh, bad uh, result for him and but i describe how this cough syrup which i totally made up called mucoquel that this cough syrup is super addictive but also super hallucinatory and a friend of mine uh, who's an older guy uh, and quite an enthusiastic guy. Actually, his girlfriend had to explain to him he went out to the pharmacy to get that cough syrup. <laughs> and his girlfriend had to say, no, I think Gary made that up. It's not a real thing because he wanted that, which I appreciate. I mean, that may be one of the, the best responses to something I've written ever. Yeah, I would have liked to have been in the in the drugstore when he went and asked the pharmacist for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if he added to them, it's very hallucinogenic. <laughs> yeah, another story I could really relate to having been from and currently living um, in Ohio. And where are you from, young man? The esteemed Judge Waltz's widow asked a first year law student at a banquet. And when he answered Ohio, she looked embarrassed for him and leaned forward to whisper, please, here in New Haven, we pronounce it Iowa. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone from Ohio will tell you if you travel a few states away, people always think you are from Iowa. And I guess it's all the vowels. How did you come across this little confusion? I honestly, I have to say that's kind of a sort of autobiographical story because I had a professor who was from Ohio and had that experience where someone was was correcting him that he was pronouncing his home state wrong, that actually Ohio is pronounced Iowa. I always found that very amusing and uh I just thought, you know, let's make it a one-sentence story. That's probably one of the lighter or more trivial of the stories. Um, but I love it. I love that someone, you know, is so sure of herself 
and so wrong as to correct someone about the name of the state of Iowa, of Ohio rather, and correcting it to Iowa. Um, Ohio is near and dear to me. I had a, a very close friend and um, mentor who was from Akron, and uh, I lost him a few uh, few months ago, about half a year ago. A really wonderful guy who uh, always, you know, he he told me some great stories about growing up in Akron, and I've been to Ohio a, a more than a few times, and always found. It's a great place. People are so extremely friendly. Well, I can tell you everyone has had this experience from Ohio. And the first the first time you have it, you're like, how can you confuse Ohio and Iowa? I mean, because when you're from Ohio, they're just so different. But then myself having lived um, so far, you know, far away from Europe to you know, West Coast to, and, you know, you get a few states away and geography isn't necessarily so strong and you can see, okay, yeah, they kind of have a similar cadence, a lot of vowels. So, so people, until they go and have experiences in either place, it's, it's just a word. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes a little disturbing how, how unknowledgeable people can be, you know, they can be well-meaning, they could have good common sense street sense but you know i've heard some real you know crazy thing people have said some really crazy things to me like really you know things that make you wonder when people say those things you got your uh source for source material for the next you know your next short uh your next short stories isn't that doug don't you agree the great thing about being a writer of fiction or non-fiction is it's all material yeah, sometimes I think I live that a little, a little too much. Uh, use that as a little too much justification of uh, in, indulging in experiences, saying, "Oh, but what a great story this is going to be." But it is all all good, all bad, and everything in between is potential source material. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that um, in a way, with time, even the really bad experiences you know, get sanded away and they don't feel as, um, uh, harsh and you can, you know, it's a pleasure to write about them. For example, one of my one sentence stories you may remember is, uh, about being spending a night in jail in Santa Barbara, which is completely autobiographical. And I can assure you that that night that I spent in jail that particular time, was most unpleasant. But, um, you know, that happened 40 years ago. And when I look back at it, uh, it's a great story. I think even in the midst of the unpleasantness of being, you know, spending a night and actually part of the next day in jail, um, it was, uh, even then, a part of me knew that this would be a great story to tell someday. One of the store, one of the stories called "Buy Me Some Stardust." You mentioned some of them are a lot heavier. I love how much was said with the irony and the juxtaposition in this one. Can I watch the first kiss with my third wife one more time? The dying man asked the Grim Reaper as his life finished unspooling before his eyes, and after the Reaper obliged him, which was against policy, but so what? The last words of the man who wasn't known in his lifetime for much politeness, were a very sincere thank you. You know, here's a guy who's been married three times and on his deathbed, the moment he wants to relive one more time is the first kiss to the third wife. I think he could like build an entire novel around this guy. Oh, thank you, Doug. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the pleasure you're hitting on something important about for me, with these stories, um, it's occurred to me that they could open out into much longer stories. So um, some I'd want to write even, you know, uh, but and by the way, a few of these were longer stories that I, you know, kind of telescoped into just one sentence. One of them um was actually a novel that I, a novel I never published, did one draft of it, 
and liked it, but just didn't keep going with it. But uh, when I was beginning to write these one-sentence stories, I ended up, con uh, I guess, collapsing, you'd say, that whole novel into one rather long one-sentence story. So that was kind of cool. But as you're saying, this the particular one you read and some others, I think, probably could be expanded into longer stories, novels. Um, part of the fun of writing these was, you know, just telling enough to have the reader have an experience, but not needing to or not having the space to elaborate further, just giving a hint just giving a suggestion. I'm not sure about other readers, but there were so many times, you know, you what you just said on it being an experience and people that haven't read the book that are listening may question, oh, well, how can one sentence be an experience? And I can guarantee when people read some of these, you do have an experience. And even so much, I would go back and be, oh, come on, that can't be one sentence. So much happened, you know, so it triggers so much inside that it just can't be one sentence. And it went back and I and can guarantee every single one is only one sentence. And I thought, oh, that must have required a lot of effort and work. Yeah, well, they did. Many of them, I really had to think about, you know, because you've only got one sentence you're working with. You have to think about what the sentence structure is going to be um, because the structure will allow or not allow for how much detail you, you put in. Um, so when I began writing each one, the first choice I made once I had a sense of what the story would be was what's the structure going to be like? How do I begin and how is it going to be set up? And a lot of that was intuitive. Once I had the idea I would just kind of, the, the, the sentence structure, or at least an initial idea of it, would appear right along with the idea. So once I got the idea, I would just get started. Very often I would change it to tell the story better. I realized that that initial sentence structure wasn't working. And it would, I would have to find a different structure by which to tell the story. But often I did keep the original sentence structure. It seemed right, you know, to um, to go with that. A lot of times I began writing them. You'd think that with a one-sentence story, uh, I knew the ending. But there were a few times where I began writing um, and had the situation but didn't know what would happen next and surprised myself with the writing. Um, one in particular, uh, my editor at Rare Bird didn't like the ending of one story, and I had to agree with him. It wasn't strong. So I began, you know, thinking what would be a better ending for this kind of interesting situation that the story sets up, and then and, and came up with a few different ideas, finally came up with one that just clicked into place. I knew that was it. So I'm grateful to the editor for um, for pushing me and I'm glad that I was able to, with a little bit of work, come up with the uh, the ending that I thought was right. I, you know, endings are really interesting. I always love the quote I heard. Someone said that an ending to a story, I wonder if you agree, Doug, the ending to a story should be both surprising yet inevitable. Yeah, I think when we we question so much that the ending, oh, how is this going to end? How is this going to end? But the really good endings, when you look back, it's the only way it could have ended. But you're still surprised by it. Yeah, those are the best endings. Those are the ones that really, and I'm always really uh, in awe at that the writer nailed it so well. You know, when you find a great ending, there are great books that don't have such perfect endings. Then there are some books that aren't that great. But the ending's great, you know? It's a different kind of thing. But um, when an ending is really right and surprising, where you didn't see it coming, but you think, oh, I didn't see that coming, but wow, that's that's cool. That's the way it should be. It has to end that way. 
That's a good feeling. I wonder, I don't know. I think there could be different endings for um, great books that are equally good. Like supposedly Dickens with his novel, Great Expectations, there are two different endings to that. And actually Clockwork Orange by, you know, the great novel by Anthony Burgess, they lopped off in the American edition, the last chapter. So the ending of the book that we have or have had in the States was different than the ending in England. I think the publisher in America didn't like the ending, the last chapter, so they lopped it off. Um, it's since been restored here. But the Kubrick movie version of, you know, um, the movie version of uh, Clockwork Orange ends with the American editions ending where, you know, you're missing the last chapter, which kind of wraps it up. And actually, I like the ending of the movie and the American edition without that last chapter better. But Burgess disagrees. You know, the author himself prefers the, the extra chapter, you know, that chapter that was cut. So, uh, yeah, endings are interesting, especially with one sentence stories. Um but but there are ending, you know, even if it's only one sentence, I tried to have something happen in each story, meaning that there's an ending. You know, it's not just a situation. It's a this happened, then that happened. And when you're writing a longer, you know, a longer novel, do you know the ending when you start? Are you structured? Do you do the outline? Do you have structure that you're following or are you discovering as you go? You know, that I wish I could be like, I have a friend, um, a writer, a very fine writer named Dahlia Sofer, who's published two great novels. Um, she's a writer who, a fiction writer, a novelist who doesn't want to know when she begins. She begins with an idea or a character or a situation and explores as she writes, no outline, no sense of where she's going and discovers it as she writes. And she's told me that that for her is a lot of the fun of it. I'm different. I use an outline and kind of have a sense of what the ending will be and what many of the steps along the way are. But I have a deal with myself that if at any point the outline's not working, something in the outline doesn't work, or I come up with a better idea, I'm free to change it. So my novel, for example, um, I always had a sense of what the ending would be. And the ending as I wrote it and as it was published was close to that ending, but uh, not not exactly how I had outlined it or envisioned it. I adjusted it uh, as I wrote it at the end. And um, many things along the way changed or were cut or were, um, uh, you know, scenes were put together, uh, you know, smushed together rather than three, four scenes, you know, they became one scene, you know, um, in the goal of making things move faster or not be repetitive. Um, so I have an outline and I have a sense of where I'm going with a long story or novel, but I feel free to change it if anything comes up. What about you? Which kind of writer are you? I've evolved into more like what you're saying, that I have a structure and I map out the characters and do the plot and know where I'm going, but I don't always know how I'm going to get there or, as you said, free to take some side trips or go in a direction if if something pops up, pops up because I kind of equate it to digging digging a tunnel that I'm going to, I'm going to just go and I'm going to dig for a while, but I'm not going to dig so long that I could completely end up somewhere. I don't want to be, I'm going to come up, I'm going to pop my head up, look around a little bit, make sure I'm going in the right direction. And then I'm going to go back underground and, and, and grind some more and do that and, and kind of map. And, you know, usually, like you said, it's that inevitable as you're planning, it's kind of that inevitable ending, but there is the creative process in the muse that appears that 
You know, you can't be so structured and, and locked in on a location that you're missing some really cool things along the way. Right. That's well phrased. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that metaphor of digging the tunnel and coming up to look around. Yeah, it's definitely writing a novel, I find. Um, it's a it's a very demanding uh, piece of work to do, you know? It's a demanding job because you really have to coordinate a lot of things. And one of the things I love about, you know, your first novel and this is there's just so much universal truth and also understanding in in your writing that comes through and i couldn't help but you know not just because some of it is an is autobiographical and and the phrase but like i said i just feel like this this sense of understanding this sense of questioning just authenticity and was wondering do you keep a journal or how do you record and and save these little nuggets and that come up later in use? You know, I, I used to keep a journal and enjoyed keeping a journal, but I have never gone back and read it again or looked at it. I don't even know where a lot of it is. <laughs> you know, I think it, it, especially as you get older, retrieval is a big thing. Like, where did I put that? Where's that book? Where's that journal? Where's that, you know, computer file? Um, so finding stuff, I'm not as, uh, I'm a bit chaotic in my habits, so it's hard to find stuff. So a lot of it, um, comes from just memory, you know, or imagination on the spot. Um, I did a, I guess the next thing I'm publishing is the introduction to a book of essays about the very amazing composer, classical and jazz composer, David Amram. Do you know who David Amram is? He's not super well-known, but he's an amazing guy. I happen to know him personally, but um, I knew I knew a bit about him before. He uh, is 92 years old, still going strong, composing, playing concerts. And this guy not only has a really amazing body of work himself, really multifarious, you know, jazz, um, folk, classical, rock, um, kind of world music, you know, where he plays with Egyptian orchestras and um, Chinese folk groups. He's really kind of an adventure musicologist and composer. But he also has led a really interesting life. He was very friendly with Jack Kerouac. And, you know, given his age, he was a young man then, but he knew Billie Holiday and Woody Guthrie and Leonard Bernstein. And um, he played, if you can dig this, he played music when he was very young with Charlie Parker. And so he's had a really rich, incredible life. And I, um, I had the privilege of writing uh, the introduction to a book about him. Um, with different essays by people uh, who wrote about him. And uh, writing that was definitely challenging because I was drawing on a lot of research. You know, it was like writing a biography of someone. And even there, I found it was tough to do the retrieval bit that I said before is difficult for me. You know, I'd have pockets of research about him, but then I couldn't remember where I put it. You know, and I had to know, unlike writing fiction, if you're writing nonfiction, you have to be responsible to the truth and to the, you know, the documents and the, the research. So that was that was difficult. And I remember thinking, you know, I can barely keep it together finding all this stuff, these research materials that I need. How am I going to, you know, ever draw on my journals if I don't know where they are or you know, read through them all. So I envy people who keep journals and use them as source material for writing. You know, I think I'd probably write a lot better stuff if I had access to it, but I'm just either too lazy or too disorganized to, to keep it together. And finally, I just stopped writing journals 
you know, keeping a journal altogether. Though I think it's really good advice for a writer. Have you had this experience where you're you're either writing and you're trying to recall something, and and you can't quite find it or you know where it is, so you just rewrite it, and then you find it later, and it's exactly how you had written it, or you're you're editing your writing and you think, oh, I want to say this, and then. A couple lines later, you had said that almost word for word. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. That that happens to me a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I often will be. I write longhand, and then I type it up. And so sometimes I'll be typing, and I'll kind of think ahead of what I'm reading that I've written and phrase it the same way in my mind from like weeks earlier, you know, when I'm typing it up. I always think that's when that happens, that's one of my favorites experiences because it's, I don't, you know, in some respect, I'm thinking, God, I didn't even remember that I wrote that before, but I've learned to be really encouraged. And I know that if in two distinct times I write something the exact same way with no connection, you know, at least uh, recollection of what I was doing, then I, it's probably exactly the way it should be said. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It falls into that groove, which is your groove. You know, it's your, it's your way of telling it. And it's, it's true to you. You know, I think a lot of times with writing, of course, we want to entertain the readers and we want to, you know, make the readers think and maybe learn something or reflect on some, some truths about human existence and human experience. But I think a lot of why we write is truly that old phrase to express ourselves and be ourselves as authentically as possible. And, uh, I remember I was in Brazil once and I met a woman and I told her I was interested in writing. And she said, uh, so are you a Jorge Amado? Jorge Amado, I, I, I knew, was um, the most prominent Brazilian novelist. And uh, or maybe she said, are you as good as Jorge Amado? Kind of teasing me. And I said, uh, no, I'm not. I bet I'm not. But Jorge Amado for all his great talent, can't write my books. He's writing his books, telling his stories, and maybe telling them better than I ever could tell any stories. But I'm telling my own, and he can't do that, you know? So, as as I said before, I think we try and tell our stories the best we can. This is a way of fending off the self-doubt. We tell our stories the best we can and make them, have them be as authentically ours as we can and then take them to town, you know, bring them, send them to the publisher or send them the friends for feedback, which is often useful, and then send them to the publisher and then write the next thing. A couple more questions here, just want to, on, on you specifically, and you've brought up um, many locations you've been, and I know that you were born in New Jersey and you've lived as far west as California and as far east as Paris and a lot in between. How do you think the different locations influenced your writing? Um, well, everywhere, you know, um, I guess the best answer to that is I've always been, wherever I've been, and however I've been, whatever age I've been, I've always been really uh, a freak for stories. I love stories. I love hearing stories. I love making up stories. I love experiencing stories and then telling about them. And um, so each of the places I've lived in or visited have been vehicles or, or, well, let's call them forums or arenas for cool stories, you know? And the stories that you experience, like the people you meet in Paris, for example, are very different from the people you meet in 
Los Angeles or Las Vegas. Um, so the stories are different. The people are different. The vibe is different. And the setting, of course, is different. Um, but wherever you go, it's stories, man. It's all about stories and what they can tell us. And you mentioned, as as we've been talking as well, and just on your point there on stories and what an avid reader and appreciation you have for stories, for books. What was the first book you remember reading? That's a great, I, I, I actually, in my one sentence storybook, I referred to, to it. Um, for the first time I've ever really referred to it in any form. Um, I remember, it's a pretty vivid memory of being in a library when I was about close to seven years old. So I'd started reading, but I wasn't, uh, you know, I read little kid books and my mother, I guess, read to me. Um, but I distinctly remember being in a library. I can picture the part of the library in my hometown. And I came across a little biography for children of a guy named Francis Marion, who was a Revolutionary War hero during the American Revolution. And he was this, um, I think he was from South Carolina. And they called him, his nickname was the Swamp Fox. And that name, Swamp Fox, that nickname, uh, really fired up my imagination, my six-year-old imagination. And I took that book home and read it. I don't remember much about it, and maybe I should, but I've never really looked into, in my adult years, who this guy was. I should check out his Wikipedia entry. Maybe that's what I'm going to do when we finish our conversation. But... That so really captivated me, reading about this war hero during the American Revolution. That book had a, a tremendous effect on me and really made me a true reader. And after that, I went back and got other biographies. And what about the last book that you've read recently? Ah, well, I'm reading right now a Mystery by Michael Connolly called The Black Echo. I just picked it up in, uh, in uh, uh, like it was uh, one of these little things where people leave books for free, and uh, I picked it up. I'd always heard about, I guess I'd read one other book by Michael Connolly. He writes a series of mysteries starring the character Harry Bosch, and that's a TV series now, which I haven't seen. But um, it's excellent noir, kind of modern noir, police, procedural. Um, the last book I finished was the most recent or one of the two novels just published by Cormac McCarthy, this novel called The Passenger, which is very flawed, I thought, but there are parts of it that are extremely powerful. And I recommend it. And I think um, for writers, reading it is instructive because there's a lot wrong with that book. But there's when he gets it right, it's very compelling, haunting, funny, meaningful. It's really stayed with me. And, you know, sometimes a book, even if it's very flawed, can really stay with you in a way that more perfectly achieved books don't. Well said. And as, as we wrap up, how can listeners learn more about you and your books? Well, I've got a website, GaryLipmanOfficial.com, and I'm on all social media, and my books are available Ideally, from a from a uh, independent bookstore, buying them at an independent bookstore, because I'll bet you'll agree with me, Doug. Nothing like buying a book in a bookstore. Ab absolutely, and reason behind this podcast is you know celebrating those bookstores and and the people who who write the books. Yeah, I think that um, you know it's certainly cool to order books online and have them show up on your door especially if they're hard to find but it will be a sad sad uh, actually a tragic and catastrophic day if we lose bookstores you know libraries too i mean libraries have their their wonderful place and bookstores have their own kind of place and we need both and we need them a lot i think you know, shopping online is is 
weak beer compared to strolling through a bookstore, browsing, reading the, looking at the books, sitting down with a bunch of them, deciding what you want, what you don't want. Maybe you're not going to buy them. You're going to go to the library. But just being around books, you either love that or you don't. But I think everybody uh, benefits from having the option of having a good bookstore in your town. Well, it's time for us to head back home. Thanks to Gary Lippman, author of We Love the World But Could Not Stay, available wherever books are sold. And thanks to all of you for taking a stroll with us and visiting the store next door. I'm Doug Cooper, award-winning author of the novels Outside In, The Investment Club, Focus Lost, and coming in spring of 2023, the children's book, The Snail and the Butterfly. We're brought to you by Rare Bird Books, based in Los Angeles, a publisher of 50-plus books per year, distributed worldwide by PGW. When you're out and about and around, remember that the store next door is your gateway to past, present, and future worlds.